Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Let's, uh, let's start with just how much time, how much energy, and how many resources are going into the coverage of the Great Salt Lake. So earlier this year, KSL TV joined our partners at KSL.com, KSL News Radio, Deseret News, and we teamed up with eight other local media outlets to join uh, what is called the Great Salt Lake Collaborative. It is a solutions journalism initiative. And the goal really is to better inform the public about the crisis that is the shrinking Great Salt Lake. I'm Matt Rascone, and this week, my conversation with Kira Faramont. She's an executive producer at KSL TV working behind the scenes on several projects, including our coverage of the shrinking Great Salt Lake and its far-reaching impacts. just hit its second record low level, which is the second time in less than a year. And um, along with our uh, media partners, there's reporting um, every day, every day across uh, 12 different media outlets. And uh, as part of the collaborative, we've agreed to share that reporting from our partners to kind of uh, expand the reach of these stories so that more people see the information. It's that important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, we're funded, the reporting is funded in part by a grant from the Solutions Journalism Initiative, which is a national organization. Um, And, you know, so they're funding some of this reporting, uh, especially if it involves traveling to other locations, kind of reporting on how other lakes have managed a similar crisis. Um, And we also have non-media partners, um, which are educators, researchers from different universities and even uh, departments with the state of Utah, all with one common goal, which is to, you know, make sure that everyone in Utah understands that this is a really big issue. You've touched on it a little bit, but why why else is this story of the Great Salt Lake so important to tell that, you know, we are teaming up with what we usually think of as competitors to tell this? Yeah, it's a really unique um, group. It's, it's something that we've never really done before um, across platforms and, and organizations here in Utah. And, and that really does prove how important the issue is. Um, you know, hitting that second 
low. It was not a surprise to the people who are uh, interested and know about the lake. But I think, um, and the experts would agree, that there's a large portion of Utah that just uh, sees the lake as something that's there and has nothing to do with their lives. Well, guys, let's be honest. The Great Salt Lake, even though it looks beautiful here, sometimes gets a bad rap. It's salty, a little smelly at times, certainly not a top lake vacation destination for most families. But there's a good chance a lot of Utahns have no idea just how much we take the lake and what it does for granted. Um, They either don't believe or don't know how it impacts them. They have no, you know, no regular interaction or no interaction at all with the lake. And so it's just something that is on the map and they've maybe flown over a time or two and they hear about, you know, how it smells or how there's bugs and how they, you know, just don't have any desire to go and interact with the lake. And that leads to this belief that it it doesn't impact me when that couldn't be farther from the truth. Since the pioneers first stepped foot into the Salt Lake Valley, the Great Salt Lake has dropped to half its size. So why is this such a big deal? Well, dropping lake levels are seriously impacting Utah's air quality, our snow, our water supply, also our economy. It was really interesting as I kind of dove into the issue because I didn't grow up in Utah. I didn't grow up learning about the lake or or Utah ecosystems and things like that. And just to see the imp- the different impacts that the shrinking lake will have. I mean, there people around the world are calling it a looming disaster, really. Um, one of the biggest things that, that I'm interested in is with every foot that the lake drops, huge amounts of dry lake bed are being exposed. So what that means is this lake bed is full of toxic chemicals. It has minerals from, from, you know, years ago mining. We're talking arsenic and mercury that is sitting there in the bottom of this lake and it's being exposed. And every time a storm comes across the Great Salt Lake, that lake bed is being kicked up into our air and transported right over the Wasatch Front. What those winds blow up from here could be part of a big problem. As a terminal lake, Great Salt Lake accumulates pollution from across its entire watershed. Molly Blakowski, a Ph.D. student from Utah State University, says there's a little bit of a lot of things in there. And now with more exposed lake bed than ever, researchers are getting a good look at what's in all of that dust. It's kind of like a bathtub without a drain. For over a century, the lake bed sediments have been slowly accumulating byproducts of human activities. Over the last three years, They've been using collection devices to analyze the particulates that get into the air. After three years of collecting dust on the dry lake bed of what used to be Farmington Bay, we've seen that the dust may contain elevated levels of potentially toxic heavy metals and man-made organic contaminants. Lukowski points out we already know particulate matter is bad for our lungs. But we don't know what the synergistic effect of breathing in arsenic and cyanotoxins and flame retardants at the same time. Janice Brainy, the assistant professor overseeing the project, says that's where they're hoping the data they gather will eventually lead. So we need to identify 
how rapidly it deteriorates during transport um, and what the spatial and temporal dynamics of, of that type of emission is. And ideally, they say, toxicologists and public health experts could take the data they're gathering. Who could help us understand what did this composition mean for human health? It's a, it's a public health hazard, which is, I, I don't think a lot of people even have any idea that that's happening. And that's just one of the major issues. Yeah, let's talk more about some of the things that uh, you and others have learned as part of this coverage. Um, where does, I mean, the, the water's dropping. We know that. <clears throat> we know that we've been in a drought for years. Where does the water in the Great Salt Lake, where does it actually come from? The Great Salt Lake, um, what makes it unique is that it only has three places where it's getting its water. It's getting its water from the Jordan River, the Weaver River and the Bear River, plus, you know, what comes out of the sky, which we know in Utah is not a whole lot. Um, So most of the water that enters the Great Salt Lake is coming from those three rivers. And as you can imagine, um, with the drought, with less snow, um, those that runoff is smaller than ever before. Plus, with uh, growing populations, more and more of that water is being taken out of that watershed, taken out of those rivers before it can even reach the Great Salt Lake. And and that's development, that's agriculture, that's so many different uses. Um, But but, you know, the biggest part of the problem is that that's the only place we can get water from. Um, So we need to find solutions that will bring more water into the lake. Great Salt Lake is in crisis and we need to act now. That is a message from an organization supporting a new bill to preserve the lake. The lake right now is at an all-time low. One of the interesting things that I've learned and and the legislature this just this past year um, took some action on is that we were still living under this 1800s law and this belief that was in state statute that the best use of all of that water was to use it. And so um, people that had water rights coming from those rivers were actually penalized if they let the water go through. If they didn't use the water, they were penalized. And so now with this new law, um, that will change. And, and it's already started so that you know farmers or people that own these water rights to these rivers will actually be able to let it flow into the Great Salt Lake and not have consequences, will not lose that water right. Um, because our belief uh, as a culture of what is the best way to use that water is changing. You know, when we first got to the valley, when the pioneers first got to the valley, using that water was believed to be the best thing we could do with it. And now we're starting to see that that's not really the case. You touched on a little bit the toxic chemicals and the dust that's now exposed and sort of traveling and making its way through different communities in Utah. Uh, what about the impact on wildlife? We know it's a refuge. We know it's a it's a place where um, that generates a lot of money. I mean, it even impacts uh, the winter, right? When we go skiing. Yeah, all of those, <laughs> all of those things, they're, and they're all interconnected. Which it's it is really fascinating. Um, they estimate about $2 billion is the cost of the shrinking Great Salt Lake. And so that's spread across um, multiple categories. 
But if we're looking at um, wildlife, we're looking at wildlife habitat that's shrinking, disappearing, um, creating land bridges to different areas where these animals have been protected before. And now with land bridges, you know, other predators are, are able to get out there and disrupt the uh, historic wildlife population. Um, you know, obviously the, the migratory bird situation is an issue that it will affect the entire globe. Um, you know, these birds have been coming to the Great Salt Lake on their migratory paths for hundreds of years. And as that shrinks, it's definitely impacting that migratory bird population. They are the sounds and sights that people come from all over the world to see. An especially big attraction for birders. This is the premier migratory bird stopover. We get millions of birds on any given day in the fall or the spring can come out here. Erin Holmes is the project manager over the Bear River Migratory Bird Refuge. She says there are fewer birds coming through here, seemingly as the wetlands are drying up. People used to call it wings of thunder because that's what it would sound like. And we don't have that now because we don't, we're not able to provide that. Not that the refuge is ever going away, but with less water coming in from the Bear River, their water rights are bringing in smaller amounts. And so the drought means less water. And so the way we have to deal with it is we have to be a little bit more selective about where we're putting the water that we do have. The big priority going into this 4,000-acre impoundment inside the refuge's auto tour loop. And you can easily see surrounding areas get less, some of them drying up. Holmes says there's a definite correlation between the amount of water and the number of birds here. It's why a study is underway now to try and measure that impact in the Mountain West, being done with the help of the Audubon Society and Point Blue Conservation. That's one of the stories that the collaborative is working on um, pretty in-depth, taking a look at the impact of that. Other wildlife, we're talking brine shrimp. Uh, The Great Salt Lake is a huge supplier of brine shrimp for the entire world. The higher the salinity of the lake, as the lake shrinks, it becomes more salty. And that affects the brine shrimp and how many there are. Um, And that's a huge industry that provides jobs and um, economic impact for the state of Utah that will definitely be uh, changed as the lake continues to shrink. Dust from the dried up lake bed is putting toxic materials into the air, material that could significantly increase our risk of cancer and other diseases. Less lake water means less lake effect snow. Less snow means less snow melt, which could mean less water for us to drink, for farming, for recreation. The lake brings in $1.3 billion into Utah's economy every year, and it's one of the most important pit stops for migratory birds in the western United States. So interestingly, if you go back to what I said about the the drying, the dry lake bed, um, researchers have found that that dust that gets picked up from the lake bed, not only is it dangerous for our health, but it ends up in the snowpack in our mountains. Hmm. And that impacts the um, speed in which the snow melts. It actually increases uh, how fast the snow melts in the mountains. Plus, it it impacts the quality of the snow. Um, in our mountains, which, you know, if we get (laughs) worse snow or less snow coming out of the mountains, it just means even less water for the Great Salt Lake. That could affect them. It would affect our air quality. We would lose probably the title of greatest snow on earth. 
And, you know, and part of that is just the recreation aspect. If we can't keep up that greatest snow on earth uh, reputation that we have, it'll be a huge impact on the revenue for, you know, our dozen and more ski resorts across the state. It's really interesting how everything is just interconnected. Just to get people to realize that there's rowing in Utah, because we're a landlocked state, people are amazed. I'm just gonna turn us again. And while everyone has their reasons, for many, just getting past the thought of the lake as gross is the biggest hurdle. For about one month a year, it's smelly. If you watch each other's backs, you stay in unison a lot better. But the rest of the year, it is magnificent. We row in the winter and it is like rowing on glass. It's just idyllic. Rest your oars on the water. It's, no. it's fascinating. <laughs> but getting people to, to, to be fascinated in it uh, I think is a tricky part of our reporting um, because there is that belief that, you know, I don't go to the lake. I don't use the lake. It doesn't impact me. And so getting viewers or readers um, interested enough to, to pay attention is one of the things that we have to deal with as a collaborative. And so I think um, the positive is that with this team of media outlets, we're able to spread all of our individual reporting to a much wider audience, which is definitely a benefit. Yeah. Yeah. That awareness. Yeah. Um, is there anything else about, uh, I mean, cause we, we hear words, historic, precedented, catastrophe, disastrous, all connected to the shrinking of this lake. Uh, is there anything else that we haven't talked about for the reason why, I mean, you know, even New York times, they, they had a, you know, a, sort of a front page paper uh, uh, story all on this lake and, and how it was shrinking. There's, you know, mineral extraction, which is, it could be billions of dollars that the state loses um, if we're no longer able to extract the type of minerals that we're, we're pulling out of the great salt lake, you know, even just property values in the state of Utah uh, will be impacted um, we talked a little bit about, you know, invasive species that are able to grow, whether that's wildlife or, um, plant life because the lake is shrinking. Um, and that's a cost to the state of Utah and taxpayers as it takes more money to get rid of those things. It's just getting Utahns to connect those things with the lake and how they're connected. And, and that's, that's something that we're trying to do. Um, you know, we're also looking at, like I said, how other lakes that have shrunk or even disappeared um, have, how that Im has impacted the surrounding areas. There's a lake in California, and I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but it's very similar to the Great Salt Lake in that it was um, a, a salt lake. And there were no protections in place that kept it from disappearing. And it did. And the communities surrounding that are paying billions of dollars every year. They have been paying billions and billions of dollars to mitigate the impacts. And they're still facing it decades later. So that's, uh, you know, a team from the collaborative will be heading out to California to look at a couple of those locations and see you know, how we can either uh, do things differently or how we can follow their, uh, their mitigation plans. And that lake was very, very small compared to the Great Salt Lake. So imagine the cost 
hmm. uh, to deal with with fixing it if we let it disappear compared to a lake that was you know maybe a tenth of the size um, we we have to do something now we can't wait till it disappears because fixing it after the fact is going to be even more costly well we can't cover a story you know where we're talking about these dire disastrous consequences without looking at solutions uh what have you uncovered or what what are you guys learning about potential solutions right it's so it's so widespread because the use of water in utah is so varied um and so solutions could come from so many different places we've we've already looked at you know some potential solutions for utah farmers we did a a really interesting look at some high tech solutions in the agriculture industry. We, we went down to Emory County and met with a farmer down there who um, was able to cut his water use by 80, 90%. You can talk about conserving water till the cows come home, but any conversation surrounding the drought crisis in our state starts with the people who've worked this land for generations. They know the issues and they more than anyone want to address them long term. Their way of life depends on it. What it is, it's a solution to a problem. Whether the rancher has a shortage of water problem, a shortage of acre problem. Lee Magnuson is talking about sustainability he wants to bring to the most arid corners of Utah in the form of new technology using hydroponic grow systems by HydroGreen. That's the plant time. Lee's big brother Rod is way ahead of him. And this requires no soil. No soil, no fertilization. No fertilization. Nope. Simply applications the, the, of some water. The energy of the seed. While he's not on the payroll, Rod could be an ambassador for this new method that just might change the way farmers and ranchers do business in the Beehive State and beyond, feeding their livestock not from the fields, but from these long trays sprouting grains seemingly in no time at all. When I seen it, I'm like, I've got to do that. It's all about conservation. And when you think about the fraction of the water and the time versus what it would take to grow the typical grain, this red wheat went from this yesterday to this just five days later, and it's almost ready to go. This will become feed for livestock within hours. And then this is all palatable, the roots, everything, they eat it all. Rod tells me this beautiful green growth can supplement some of the nutritional needs of his 1,200 head of cattle. It doesn't replace the need for pasture grazing or trucking in hay and straw from other places, but it does cut it down saving money and saving a lot of water. My 80-acre pivot will use the same amount of water in four and a half days as this building will in 365 days. In a year. In a year. Um, We've looked really closely at some of the legislative solutions that have come out um, specifically in the last year. Uh, They really focused on the Great Salt Lake in the last legislative session, and we'll be looking to see, you know, what more they're going to be doing in the next session. The Great Salt Lake is in a serious crisis that is impacting all Utahns. Zachary Frankel is the executive director of the Utah Rivers Council, a nonprofit organization that is backing a new bill to preserve the Great Salt Lake. He says this lake creates a $1.3 billion economy, brings in millions of birds across the country, and is crucial for our air quality. This bill is the only framework being offered today to offer a substantive way to protect the future of the Great Salt Lake for everyone. The new bill is sponsored by State Representative Doug Sagers from Tooele and is actually modeled after the Colorado River Drought Contingency Plan. 
But this proposal creates a tier system where fees would be imposed for secondary water companies depending on the water level. Instead of cutting water use, we are utilizing the free market to keep water levels at the Great Salt Lake higher. We impose fees. You know, there's so many, so many stories that we cover on a daily basis that aren't about the Great Salt Lake, but are tied into the Great Salt Lake. You know, all of our drought reporting, all of our water saving reporting, it all, you know, impacts the Great Salt Lake. And so we've looked at how individual Utahns can save, help save water. You know, even those little things that individual Utahns are doing to help uh, save water is something that's tied into the Great Salt Lake. June, July, and August are the driest months in the year in Utah. And when it comes to water, our yards could be the primary culprit for overuse. And part of that is, uh, I know one of the recent stories I saw was uh, metering our water, which of course most Utahns don't even know how much water they're using. We don't, you know, we're, we don't have to, there's no incentive, I guess, to, to uh, decrease our water usage. Um, what, what, uh, what did you learn about metering and how that would actually help with that use? Yeah, that was really interesting. And there's been studies that kind of led to some changes in different Utah water districts that showed that even just installing a water meter on a secondary water. So a secondary water is untreated water that you use to water your lawn, um, water your gardens. This is not the water that's coming into your home to drink. So if you have most Utahns or a lot of Utahns have a secondary water and most water districts, um, you, you pay to use that water, but there's no feedback on how much you're using. Um, and so researchers actually found that simply just installing a meter at someone's home makes them more cognizant of the amount of water they're using in secondary use. And the ability to gauge that amount of water making its way to your yard could help slow the flow. It's really to demonstrate, hey, this is the amount of water you're using versus the recommended use. Mayor Trent Staggs is thrilled that the legislature passed HB 242, which provides funding for a required conversion to secondary meters. Seeing as how his city was ahead of the game in 2020, installing one third of the meters needed for Riverton's 12,000 connections. We have every bit of confidence. I have every bit of confidence that our residents will want to step up and do the right thing and be part of the solution in, in conservation. It needs to be our top priority. There is no substitute for water. Candace Hassan-Yeager is the director of the Division of Water Resources for the state and looks at the big picture, 260,000 untreated secondary water connections, which is roughly 30% of the households in Utah. Water for grass and gardens alike. As of April of this year, only 15% of those connections were metered. But where they are, there's been a significant decrease in water usage. The city of Saratoga Springs installed secondary meters eight years ago. Secondary water use dropped 36%. Similar story in the Weber Basin Water District, where meters and the information they provided to homeowners resulted in 20 to 40% less water use per customer. We can now dial it into the individual user, and here's your water use. Here's what the climate and the weather patterns over the last several weeks have dictated your lawn probably needs. Here's where you are. So just educating them on the volumes of water they're using on their landscapes, which historically they've had no idea. State leaders recognize the impact increasing the amount of meters across the state could have and have taken action to get things moving. But the goal is to get everyday Utahns to get on board. And the state, this legislative session, um, actually made it mandatory 
for Utah water suppliers to have these secondary meters installed by 2030. So a part of that, they are offering grants for water suppliers to install these meters. Um, and what was interesting, the, the first application period for water suppliers to apply for that money ended in May. And uh, state water officials were, were telling me how they had kind of expected to have a couple of application periods over several months. And they were a little bit surprised to see how many uh, water suppliers jumped on that first application period and the money could could be gone very quickly. <laughs> um, and it's not nearly enough to install them statewide. It's, it's probably a third of what it would actually cost. Um, so it will take more money to get them installed, but that's definitely um, one solution that we've looked at um, that could have a, a big impact uh, on the water that flows into the Great Salt Lake for sure. Yeah. And I know just from previous reporting that, I mean, Utahns, we use a lot of water, like more, yeah. I, I believe, than any other state in the country, uh, water use. And so that's an area that seems pretty obvious where we can try to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I went to, so the uh, Great Salt Lake Institute hosted a Great Salt Lake Forum earlier this year. It was a three-day forum with all sorts of stakeholders talking about the issue and potential solutions. Um, just fascinating stuff. But one thing that kind of they all agreed on is uh, Utah has this mindset that we don't live in a desert, even though we do live in a desert. You know, you look around, it doesn't look like we live in a desert. And so we don't act like we live in a desert. And so that's something that they really believe um, needs to change is that Utahns need to realize that we do live in a desert. Um, you know, if you look at other desert locations in the West, they they look much more like they're living in a desert than, you know, say we do here on the Wasatch Front, where there's green grass everywhere and uh, landscaping that requires quite a bit of water. So uh, one thing that I'm look I'm looking into this week is uh, the Jordan Valley Water Conservancy District is um, they're either instituting or they're looking to institute um, a new ordinance in the Jordan River Valley that would make it so that new developments um, are restricted on how much grass they can install. Um, and they're also would be required to have kind of drip water systems rather than sprinklers as a way to you know, conserve some, uh, some more water. When did this coverage begin for us and this collaboration and, um, the challenges along the way? And I mean, how long is this going to last? So we joined the collaborative in April. Um, initial talks to form the collaborative, I believe, started in January. Um, but things really started to come together in April. And we've been meeting and um, talking amongst the collaborative uh, media partners since then. Um, I would say we've probably had dozens of stories already since April that are tied into the Great Salt Lake. And not all of them are, are solutions stories. Um, those take a little bit more digging, a little bit more information. 
but again, we're not only doing solution stories. We are just trying to better inform the public about the issue. In short, the shrinking Great Salt Lake is a complicated problem with local and even worldwide implications that could potentially be devastating. I guess, is it difficult to get people to, to get some of these players to talk about this? I mean, are, um, do people want to admit that there is a problem, that, that we do need to do something different? Uh, what does that look like? Um, no, it's definitely not something that uh, the, the experts are shying away from. And even uh, state leaders. The governor is very passionate about the issue, um, working on on lining up an interview with him uh, to talk about some of the things that the state is doing. Um, I don't know if you saw recently the state kind of came under some fire in the national media for um, how we're handling the problem and how we're handling the drought. And uh, the governor went a little bit on the defensive letting people know that we're doing more than just asking residents to pray for rain. We are doing that as well. Um, but that's just one of the things uh, that, that the state of Utah is doing. Um, but I really have not, I've not encountered anyone that's, that's not willing to talk to me about um, things that they're doing or things that they think could be done to solve the problem or, or at least help the problem. I don't think there's any one solution that anyone is going to point to that's just going to fix it. It's going to take uh, small changes in many different areas, but definitely um, we have the support of, of a lot of different uh, players that are willing to help tell the story. Together with the Great Salt Lake Collaborative, KSL is committed to reporting on this issue and potential solutions. We will be bringing you regular stories and reports along with all of our partners as we all try to embrace the lake and protect its future. You can find out much more about this collaborative project and weigh in on the potential solutions. Do that on our website, ksltv.com. There is a central location for all of our reporting. It's it's at Great Salt Lake News. Org. And all of our reporting is there, as well as tons of information about the collaborative, about the issue, um, about the concern, and uh, really everything you could want to learn is there. We could do a story on this just about every day, it sounds like. Easily, easily. Um, even, <laughs> even there's sometimes that I'm surprised that we've done a story that's tied into the Great Salt Lake Um you know, just as a, a daily story that one of our reporters has pitched and gone and done. Um, and I'll see it later and go, oh, yep, that <laughs> that ties into the Great Salt Lake. So it really, there's so many different aspects. Um, it's a little bit overwhelming to try and decide how and when and, and which stories we want to do um, and to connect with our media partners and, and coordinate those things. Um, but it's... Uh, it's absolutely fascinating. And, you know, I hope that we can get Utahns to, to at least listen, to hear, uh, to hear about the issue, to hear about it, how it will impact them and uh, have them at least consider making some changes. This media collaboration for the Great Salt Lake is funded for the next year with the option of extending another year. And you can follow along with our coverage on it on KSL TV, KSLTV.com, and on that website, Great Salt Lake Collaborative, 
that was mentioned earlier, where you can find the stories from all of the media partners that are working on this. That does it for us this week on KSL Plus. I'm Matt Rascone. We'll see you again next week.